So today on IFS Talks, we're speaking with Jean Catanzaro, PhD. Jean is a licensed clinical psychologist with 25 years experience in treating eating and trauma-related issues. She's written articles about IFS and eating disorders and is dedicated to helping people develop self-led relationships with food and their bodies. Jean is a certified IFS therapist in private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts, and she's the vice chair of the executive committee for the IFS Institute. Jean, thank you so much for being here with us today on IFS Talks. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really uh, looking forward to this discussion. So thanks much, Jean, for willing to sit with us. And what parts come up today during this bio? Well, the part that immediately comes up is I have so much to say about this topic, you know. How will I get it all in? And so, you know, I have to remind that part to kind of relax. In terms of the bio, you know, there's a part of me that can't believe it's been 25 years. That feels hard to believe. And I feel really good about the work that I am involved in now and get to be involved in my involvement with the IFS community. So it feels like after, I feel grateful that after 25 years, I can um, continue to feel this inspired, you know, by my clients, the people I consult with, other therapists in this community. So mm -hmm. that's not bad to be able to say after a quarter century. Jean, was there something that led you into the world of psychology? Was there, was there a setup in your early life? <laughs> yes, in, in, a, in brief. Yes, I think that, you know, I've said to um, my mother more recently that I now get to do family therapy and get paid for it. And, uh, you know, I think I was, I was born into a family where uh, nobody really wanted to speak to feelings or be present to them. And I was very much a very sensitive, uh, thoughtful kid who was, who was very aware of things. And one of the things that I started doing quite early was writing and I would write stories and get very involved in all the, you know, the different characters. I loved reading. And then when I got into um, high school, I started uh, studying a lot of different languages not fluent in any of them except English, but um, I studied French, Italian, and a little bit of German. And just the idea of being able to bridge gaps and be able to um, find ways to communicate and all of the psychology of that, right? Of, of you know, the, the satisfaction of being able to bridge a gap and then mm -hmm. uh, connect with somebody who's so different was so exciting to me. But I had parts who were so unbelievably self-conscious that I got very good. Um, I was adept at learning languages, reading and writing, but really had parts who would not let me speak it for fear of being shamed. That really got in my way. Mm -hmm. So I do have a degree in French, although I can't speak it. And at the same time, at some point, I decided that I would be a French teacher for about two months. 
And during that period of time, I, I took an abnormal psych class that was part of the education degree. Oh. And once I took an abnormal psych class, I thought, this is really what I want to do. You know, and then it became, I got um, some internship experiences working with um, chronically mentally ill clients at Mass Mental Hospital here in Boston. And I just immediately knew this is what I really want to do. And again, it became for me a way of bridging the gap between people and finding a way to connect and, and um, reach across differences and, and make connections. And so I really liked the idea of going into psychology. And that's really um, when I decided to become a therapist and go to grad school and have not ever regretted it. I've, you know, it's been to me, it's, it's the best decision I made. What was it about that abnormal psych class that clicked for you? More than the class, it was the fact that it was connected to an internship. And in the internship, I had a job in a day treatment program for chronically mentally ill adults, kind of developing more social connection between them. So I would I would just sit and have groups and, you know, just speak with them one on one. And I just I just immediately it was more the direct experience with people that made me say this is really what I want to do rather than the academic class. You know, it's just that opening. Jean, you used to work in a eating disorder treatment center, so your interest in food and body came before you came across IFS, right? It did, but so, but in a kind of an indirect way, because I didn't start working at an eating disorder treatment center because I had an interest in this area, per se. I had an interest, I was working, my first job out of my PhD program was at a university, a Jesuit university, mm -hmm. and... I was the only woman at the time. The rest of the uh, therapists were male. And so I had a lot of people coming to me. Mm -hmm. A lot of the issues related to eating or to um, sexuality, things like that. It was a very conservative environment. And so I really liked that job and got some experience with eating issues and eating disorders, certainly, in that job. But I didn't really know what I was doing. And then after about five years in that job, a position became available in an in a eating disorder program. And it was a therapeutic milieu. So it was women working with a group of women. And that was so interesting to me. I, I, it felt a little bit like my experience mm -hmm. with the day treatment with the chronic mentally ill. Where it, and, and I had also worked prior to graduate school on an inpatient mm -hmm psychiatric unit i might when i went to graduate school my thought was that i would be working with the chronically mentally ill and my internships for much of the time that i was in graduate school were in state psychiatric hospitals in day treatment programs things that like like that i really liked the relational component i had the for good fortune of working with supervisors who were very very interested in really looking at the impact of the system, the larger system, culture, cultural systems, and the smaller, more you know, ethnic you know, kind of systems on the clients in the day treatment program. Mm -hmm. And one of my supervisors I would be, you know, we didn't 
she didn't know IFS, you know, this was in the mid nineties, but she was, she was speaking about parts. And so when some of the clients had, were, had, um, came in with voices, she would relate to them mm -hmm. like parts. So it was very, very helpful. So I really liked that relational component, the systems thinking. And so when I saw that there was a job available in this day treatment program at the Renfrew Center in New York, I just jumped at the opportunity. I thought it would be really great to be in that kind of environment. And then when I was there, I got, you know, it's like boot camp for, you know, learning everything I ever wanted to know about eating disorders. So, no, but obviously I was open to it, right? Obviously I was, I was open to doing that kind of work. So, you know, I do think that there was, mm -hmm. there was an openness to it that later on I, I could reflect back and consider some of the, the aspects of my environment growing up that obviously led me to be open. And so I don't know if it would be helpful for me to speak a little bit about that, but I would be happy to. I think it would be really interesting to hear. Yeah. So I, um, I grew up in a family where my mother, for much of my life growing up, was uh, she was in a larger body and had grown up with a lot of trauma about that, a lot of uh, abuse, a lot of bullying, some from her own mother, name-calling. And when, when I was growing up, what I uh, was very aware of, it was a concern for her, mm -hmm. a concern about her health, um, her depression and you know at, at a couple of points you know my father would say to us what are we going to do about mom so I felt like a lot of concern about what what will we do mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know I think that so I, I wasn't it wasn't something that I was aware of because like most of it, we're just in it right we're in these environments we're not really we're not aware of all the messages that we get about bodies and about health and about you know, ability, we just, we're just immersed in it. So I wasn't really conscious of anything. When I did reach puberty, my mother, who did not want me to experience the same type of abuse that she had, got nervous. I think when I started, I had a growth spurt and I developed a, a, a stomach and that I was actually quite excited by. I thought that I, I looked in my 10 or 11 year old self, I thought I, I was more like a belly dancer. I thought this was kind of cool. But my mother, I think, had a part that was nervous for me mm -hmm. and said, I think we really need to, you know, have you, you need to watch it kind of thing. And so started packing my lunches with cottage cheese sandwiches, which aren't as bad as they sound, but certainly aren't gourmet. And, um, you know, just mm -hmm. was all of a sudden there was a there was an awareness, right? There was a um, uh, focus on it, or more of a focus. So there was that, but I was also had a lot of very positive um, experiences body wise, where I was very athletic and 
my sisters and I were involved with com very competitive soccer from the time we were quite young. And, you know, another aspect of our, our childhood, which I've gotten clearer about, especially as I've gotten older, is we were taught that we, we, there was nothing we couldn't do if we, try, we did, if we just put enough effort into it and we tried. So that included a lot of physical things. And as I get older, I've realized, oh, right now in my mid-50s, it's really important for me to notice the parts that feel like I should still be able to do whatever it is. You know, like I got locked out of our house and had to climb a fence to get, I mean, you know, just like whatever, scrambling up, not thinking about like, oh, maybe this is good for my, my body as it is now, you know, so... So the sort of family values of have physical strength and a capacity, emotional strength also, and my mother's history with being in a larger body and having family members who are really focused on it critically were part of the uh, fabric for me. And then there was also, you know, I grew up in an Italian family mm -hmm. um, where there was an emphasis on home-cooked food. And, you know, we talk about uh, legacy heirlooms, right? Things we, we get from our, uh, our families and from our cultures. And what I got was a real emphasis on the connection that food afforded, connection and love and, you know, really wholesome, really good food, good tasting food. You know, and where that can mm -hmm. go, yeah. where uh, the, on the flip side, there was also an attitude about processed food, right? So that, you know, home-cooked food is better always kind of thing. So I've become just much more aware of all these different, mm -hmm. you know, biases and that I did grow up with, but it wasn't something that was, you know, wasn't the thing that drove me to work with eating disorders per se. When you were at, um, is it Renfrew? Yeah. Um, did they start incorporating IFS therapy into the work when you were there or was there a different modality? They didn't. No, they did not. It was, it was psychodynamic largely some CBT and I know that's changed now mm -hmm. but what happened was I worked at Renfrew and I became the program director of the day treatment program and when you in that position what I was responsible for was referring people out to treatment programs around the country if they needed to go to a higher level of care and I also then would admit people come being discharged from inpatient programs back to day treatment mm -hmm. And so I got a sense of what programs, inpatient programs, were doing excellent work. And at some point, somebody recommended a treatment center in the Midwest that was doing IFS. And so I started referring my clients there. And apologies to anybody who's heard the story before, but at this point I'd left Renfrew and I was working 
for a number of years in private practice, but again, I had the, the familiarity with the different facilities, started referring to this treatment center that used IFS, and then my client came back home, very, very complicated family environment, and was coming back to that very complicated family environment, and also had had a, the chronicity of her eating disorder and the severity of it. Um, were significant. So I had a lot of concerns with her coming back and how that would how that would happen, you know, because of insurance constraints. She wasn't able to stay there for as long as I wanted her to. So, you know, parts of me were very concerned. She came back and she related that she went out to dinner, ate too much and as a part of her told her and then she said, you know, and I went out to the alley and, you know, it would have been quite typical for her to throw up in the alley next door. And um, she said, and I got outside and a part of me was like, you should just throw up. And then another part of me was like, no, we don't need to do that. And she said, so I just work with my parts. Mm -hmm. And I was like, work with your parts. <laughs> that is phenomenal. Like I couldn't, I, I was so amazed by it. And, um, and I just thought, wow, that is really something. It was it was inside of her, right? It was really, uh, I, and over you know the next couple of months, I watched. It wasn't the customary. I've been in treatment. My you know certain parts. Usually, a lot of times in traditional treatment, there's a focus on, you know, the managers can step up and they're compliant in treatment, and then when they get out because the exiles haven't been healed, then they come back home, get into the same environments, and start getting triggered, and then get back into the eating disorder symptoms. And so, and this wasn't happening with her. So I decided this is something I really need to, need to get training in. So that's when I decided to go to Esalen, which is where I met Dick. And I think eight weeks later, I was in um, a level one. So that was when, back then? That was in 2000, at the at the uh, beginning of, 2008 was when I first started becoming familiar with IFS, and 2009 was when I started the training. And you started the training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did it change your practice? How did it change my practice? So as somebody who had been working with trauma and eating disorders for many years, I had done a lot of work and trained in different modalities like EMDR and somatic experiencing, which were really helpful. I really liked them and found them effective. But IFS really facilitated healing for my clients and myself in a whole different way. It made me a much better therapist. For my clients, first and foremost, the concept of all parts have positive intentions was so different from what they were used to. Their own within themselves, they have they had parts that hated the ones that would restrict or hated the ones that would purge. And they were also used to people outside of them, parents, doctors, also 
being upset about those parts. And so it was a shift, a really important shift in focus from viewing parts as problematic and instead considering their protective function. And for some of my clients, in fact, a life-saving function. And so developing an honoring, uh, developing a respect and an honoring of those parts instead of trying to get rid of them. The thing that really helped was for them to get that there was that they were um, comprised of a system of interrelated parts and that they could get to know those parts and get to know that those parts interacted in ways that were predictable. A lot of times when people have extreme or chronic eating issues, what happens is they get blended so much and then there there are extreme polarizations between parts. And so things can seem very chaotic and out of control. So having this inner map was extremely relieving because it made things make sense. And another thing that really was relieving was the awareness that protectors are forced into their protective strategies. They don't choose them. They are forced into those roles because they're necessary to help them survive and the environment in which they're, they've developed, and that protectors won't make a shift until they trust it's safe to do so. So many of my clients had been in either relationships or in treatment programs that were really focused on eliminating or stabilizing the behaviors, and that just got them into power struggles, either with parts of themselves who were saying, just stop it, or with people outside of themselves or they would go to a treatment program where a part of them would be compliant, like a manager that wanted to please. And then as soon as they got out of treatment, the part the firefighters would take over because the exiles had been healed. So this recognition that you've been doing this for a reason to a part, you've been doing this for a reason and we get that. And our job is to help you trust that there's a different way to go about this. It's very relieving. And finally, the concept of a self, of a core healing wisdom inherent to them that couldn't be damaged by trauma was a big relief even if they had skeptical parts as many of my clients with significant trauma histories would be skeptical about ever having had this core wisdom but parts of them felt relieved by the concept for me the concept of self was a big, uh, a big change, something that really facilitated my work because instead of it being incumbent upon me to fix the client, to take care of them, to give them a resource that they didn't have, fill a deficiency, to really trust that that was within them and that my job instead was to create the conditions for them to be able to access it, that was a big relief. Really changed things. I could get the, my own parts to step back especially when fierce or entrenched protectors came up for me to be able to really get my parts to step back so I could be curious along with the client, gendering the client's curiosity about what was going on for this part and to help it so that we could get to know the exile it was protecting. The inner map was very helpful for me to be able to, similarly, to be able to anticipate sequences of behavior and to keep that in mind. So 
and lastly, to be able to work with my own parts um, and get to know the, my biases that I held about food and bodies was very, and continues to be very helpful. So I mentioned earlier that I grew up with a mother who was in a larger body and there was a lot of concern about her health. And I got to know that I had parts that automatically assumed ill health when I saw somebody in a larger body. And so that was a really important thing for me to be able to unburden because whether it's articulated or not, the beliefs that we hold about other bodies are felt by our clients. So the things that we talk about, the things that we don't talk about, lots of clients come into therapy and they have had either bad experiences, negative experiences of, of being um, uh, diagnosed based on what they look like, like you must be depressed because you're in a larger body or therapists who never discuss anything related to food in their bodies. Um, they talk about that. So just knowing your, your own biases is so important for things that are more extreme, like what I just mentioned about the equation of weight with health and things that are more subtle. Like when a client comes in and says something that seems like a throwaway comment, like, Oh, I can't, can't wear shorts. Couldn't find something to wear today. Cause I can't wear shorts. I, I can't show my legs anymore. In the past, I might have easily overlooked that, but because of IFS, I'm a much better parts detector. One of the things that's really important is I would like to inspire people to consider doing more and more of this work. I often hear from people, I don't work with eating disorders, I don't work with eating issues, which to me just speaks to the ubiquity of the burdens around food and bodies in our culture that so many people feel challenged by their own difficulties that they feel like they can't possibly be of help to people. Why you say somehow, um, Jean, that um, healing is difficult to sustain uh, given these um, cultural climate and burdens regarding food and body? You just mentioned some aspects of these power struggles. Oh, sure. So with IFS, you know, in addition to the, you know, the relief that's afforded by considering that you're, you know, it's it's a part versus the whole, mm -hmm. right? And then really understanding that our parts have positive intentions, which really allows the system to relax. And then certainly with eating disorders, people with eating disorders are used to either themselves having parts who are trying to get rid of a part or other people who are trying to get rid of a part. And so just the recognition that we need to get the parts permission. We, we have to start, earn the trust, first validate what they've been trying to do, mm -hmm. learn what they've been trying to do, and then help them trust that it's safe to actually ease up or let go of their extreme strategies, right? That's a whole process, a whole relationship process that's incredibly relieving when people start to realize that you're not going to try to make them change. But in terms of the cult, the impact of the cultures, you know, there's, There's our immediate family culture. There's the ethnic group that we're born into. There's the larger culture. And, you know, one of the, another 
really important aspect of the IFS model is that we recognize those environments. We recognize the systems in which the protectors are embedded. Mm-hmm. Because if we're going to ask a part to let go of its protective strategy in an environment which calls for the protective strategy, that's not going to be safe. And so a lot of the burdens that exist in our culture make it so that it's extremely difficult for people, for protectors to ease up on their protective strategies. And I could say a lot more about that if you would like. Yes, it would be nice to hear an example. So a client I was working with had um, done a lot of work to get to know a couple of the most significant uh, eating-related protectors in her system. One she called the general, and the other one who was the medical concern part, one of, like a hand-wringing, very worried about her health. And so she worked with those parts to step back a bit and give her some room to try intuitive eating. And she was she was uh, really checking in with what she needed, what she wanted, what felt good to her in terms of eating and in terms of movement. And she was feeling pretty good about it. And she would notice those parts grumbling here and there, like every so often when she ate past the point of fullness or when she didn't exercise for a few days, she would notice the, the, the part she called a general getting kind of edgy. But she was able to get those parts to step back and she was feeling happier and more self-led. And then she went to a wedding and her mother came up to her and just kind of tugged at her dress and said, wow, this is a lot tighter than the last time I saw you in it. And probably about a week later, went to the doctor for a checkup and the doctor said, you know, you've gained a little weight, you know, you really want to watch it. And immediately that general came right back in and said, see, I told you, I told you this was going to happen. And the medical concern part came in and said, you know what, we got to do something about this. He's right. It's going to get worse. We should just go in the whole 30, you know, that worked the last time. And so, you know, we had to then step back in and help those parts trust that she could take care of this, that she could, um, what it did involve was setting some different limits with her mother and really getting clear with herself about she wasn't in any kind of medical danger and really helping those parts um, step back again so she could continue to explore this and continue to eat in a self-led way. There's so much our, our emphasis on if you just work hard enough, you can change your body and and that you should change your body right we have a lot there's a lot of stigma about health and weight and ability in our culture so the idea of no pain no gain or just work hard enough eat less move more and you know it people chalk it up to self discipline right that's a huge cultural um, burden that impacts people because actually, you know, that's not true. And it causes a lot of pain. And people who um, are stuck in the cycle of always either feeling like they should be dieting or they should be doing something to change their body or they actually are, they have parts who are doing it, right? It's very difficult for those protectors to agree to not do it 
because with their, with the reality is that in our society we get judged mm-hmm. you know people people judge each other for what letting themselves go for not working hard enough you know that there's um there's research has been done about when people demonstrate that they're trying to lose weight so if people in larger bodies um say that they've been dieting or they or or they show that they're going to the gym and working out they are met with less disgust than if they don't express that they're doing these things to, to quote unquote take care of themselves you know so it's a very real threat that people face that you know so it's very one of the things about IFS also that's very helpful is when we're talking to people about you know we've always talked to people about how does your eating disorder serve you right we've always kind of how how do those protectors you know and, and before i learned IFS we would look at the function of the eating issue right or the focus on body image but we weren't helping people create a relationship with those parts and a relationship with that part with those parts that acknowledges the threats the system, the, the the systemic oppression that people who are in bodies that don't who are seen as less than right we have a hierarchy around bodies right fit bodies attractive bodies thin bodies white bodies able bodies mm-hmm. heterosexual cisgender all of those things and if you if you differ from those in any way right you're more vulnerable mm-hmm. to that kind of and so it's a, a matter of helping um protect validating that for certain protectors and helping the person you know get into self to part you know a relationship with their self and also um helping them connect with other people who are also um self-led in these ways right so interesting so there is this dilemma of trying to heal personal burdens while continuing to live in a stigmatizing culture absolutely and i think the one thing that i feel very clear about is just you know even right now what we're noticing with with the pandemic laying bare all the disparities right all you know structural racism and the oppression the systemic oppression of different people in marginalized groups <laughs> You know the fact is that we can work work on our personal burdens but that is very different from bringing self energy to external systems which we we're all really uh it's an important thing for all of us to get that the lived experiences of so many people are um involved daily threat uh daily pain a lack of resources you know and that that each of us can contribute to the shifting of that and that's really going to be important to be able to maximize healing of more individuals you know more broadly you know Why do you say that the implicit bias about weight and is increasing mm-hmm. while other biases are decreasing? 
Mm-hmm. Why so? Well, you know, unlike other forms of bias, um, you know, we carry these beliefs about our bodies that we should be able to control them, and that it's our moral responsibility, right? That we're mm-hmm. that um, we're we are. There's something wrong with us if we don't if we uh, don't change our bodies. And so, you know, we can't control the color of our skin. At one point, we did think that we could control our sexuality, mm-hmm. right? That was a belief, and homosexuality was considered an illness, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, prior, you know, earlier, and so there was a sense that that was under your control. And in this culture, we like we we really want to feel like we can control things, right? And that we should be able to control things. So, implicit bias uh, against bodies um, is perpetuated in part by that cultural burden, that belief that it's a matter of personal responsibility and that we're just lazy if we don't, if, if for some reason we're in a larger body, ignoring the fact that there's a natural diversity of body size. And then um, a natural diversity and that, in, that instead of focusing on weight and on the status of somebody being in a marginalized group, that we really need to look at the social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Right, the great economic disparities, the great disparities in healthcare. Right, how people are treated when they go to the doctor is very different if they if they are in a larger body, for example. So I think implicit bias isn't going down around age, um, weight, and health healthism, mm-hmm. because we all want to believe. Well, not we all. I shouldn't say that that way. Many people in our culture would like to believe that if we just try hard enough, we can, we can change things. We can get out of that group. And so the group uh, membership there's, is, and this is, you know, there are a lot of people doing great work to really create groups where there's more safety, mm-hmm. you know, where, where there's, there's a real emphasis on, working on the and looking at this as a uh, social justice issue right so there's mm-hmm. increasing communities like that but you also have at the same time a president who's talking about mm-hmm. disparagingly about uh, larger bodied people you have um you know comedians like bill maher going on tirades about how shaming humiliating tirades about how we need to just shame people more so we have a lot of different uh Oprah Winfrey talking about within every large-bodied woman is a thin woman, mm-hmm. you know, dying to get out. So a lot of key figures in our culture that keep conveying this this belief, uh, reinforcing it, that you know, that if there's a will, there's a way, and there's something wrong with you, you know. Yeah. So those are the burdens that we carry mm-hmm. regarding food right. and our bodies. Mm-hmm. I so appreciate your perspective and your insight. And it reminds me of a quote I read recently by Desmond Tutu, which I'm going to not accurately quote, but it's um, great. Great. You know, after we keep pulling people out of the river, eventually we need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. 
So I really love this quote because it speaks directly to the predicament that our protectors are in. That they can shift, they can step back, and then we look up, and then they're, they get bombarded by all these judgments and messages that continue unabated. Right, so it's very difficult. And, you know, we, we're accustomed to thinking about privilege as automatic access to resources for being members of a dominant group. But from an IFS perspective, I'm thinking about privilege as an absence of legacy burdens and direct burdens that result in so much exiling, painful burdens and beliefs about food in our bodies and protectors that need to remain on guard to be vigilant against ongoing threats. And one of the things that's really so important about IFS is that it recognizes that individual healing is connected to the collective healing and that it's really important to bring IFS to external systems. So that's one of the goals of the IFS model. And that when we do our own internal work, we work with, with our own biases about bodies and heal those, that it's really important to get to know the implicit bias we hold about other bodies, especially the lived experiences of people in marginalized bodies, to learn about, about them and to understand the impact of health and wealth disparities, the systemic oppression that, that affects so many people. You know, during this pandemic, there's a lot of discussion about how black and brown bodies and larger bodies are more susceptible to COVID. And we're not looking at the different levels of healthcare accessibility, how many people are turned away for testing, that Ted, the, how much testing is available depends on what zip code you live in. And the fact that there's so many things that, that um, living in a marginalized body, the impact of so much stigma and discrimination and lack of resources is what results in a lot of these health disparities. So what IFS does so nicely is to recognize that in order to um, heal the collective, we have to heal ourselves work with the parts that have bias about others, and then take action, self-led action to help shift. So there's healing mm -hmm. on, a broader, on the broader level. So Jean, what is really being self-led versus parts-driven when it comes to food and body. What are self-led eating practices? Can you give us some examples? We are self-led eaters when we're born, right? For most of us, unless there's a medical condition, right? We cry when we're hungry, we eat till we're full. And immediately we're subjected to all kinds of beliefs, messages, about food and bodies from our parents, from medical providers, from parents, friends, parents, parents, right? All the, all the biases they hold about food, the conditions in our environment, if there is enough food, if there are enough resources, things like that, fears about food insecurity, all of those things impact and shape our relationships with food. And so lots of us, many of us get disconnected from our core wisdom about what our bodies want and need as a result 
a lot of people um, remember a time when they ate without thinking about it. They just ate what they liked. They ate till they were full. I have clients who can never remember a time when they ate without being self-conscious, without thinking, without knowing that there was a good food or a bad food, or that uh, without a self-consciousness about their bodies. So self-led eating and wellness, in my view, involves getting to know and healing the parts who focus on food and the body to cope with emotional pain or trauma so that we can reconnect with that uh, core wisdom with our um, self and so and our it's wisdom about what we need and so that most of the time the decisions we make about food movement sleep and connection come from checking in with with what we need inside with ourselves ex- rather than focusing on external rules and guidelines so it really means being with the body we have now mm-hmm. not the body we had 10 years ago not the body we could have in the future which doesn't mean not having an overarching intention which i think is can be a self-led intention like i would like to be flexible as i age and so that's a self-led intention versus a parts driven agenda which would be i have to stretch every day because if i don't stretch every day i'm not going to be flexible so just being in the present checking in with our parts to see what it is that we need now And teasing apart the different parts who have competing agendas about about food in the body. Like, I might have a part who wants to go to the gym and another part that wants to sleep, right? And if I'm self-led, I'm going to check in with the different parts and appreciate for today what is it that feels important in terms of maximizing my well-being. Some days that's going to mean to sleep in. Some days it's going to mean to go to the gym. Mm-hmm. And not letting, again, not letting certain parts dominate or get rigid. Because the fact of the matter, it takes a lot of, a lot of work to take care of our bodies, right? It takes a lot, of, a lot of care. And so a lot of times we need to extend gratitude to the parts that step back so that we can go to the store and prepare meals or mm-hmm. gratitude to the parts mm-hmm. that step back when they would really rather that we go to the gym, but instead we're going to lie on the couch and take a rest. So from self, we negotiate between the parts and facilitate more of a collaborative relationship between and among the parts, appreciating that they all contribute something important. Self-led eating, in my view, involves it's almost like being a good parent to your parts, right? It's not letting one kid take over and dominate. It's not let's not giving your kids like, you know, access to the kitchen saying, do whatever you want, whenever you want. It's about saying, you know what, we're going to, provide opportunities for adequate nutrition and rest. And when a part takes over, being able to recognize it as a sign that somebody needs attention, right? That there's a part that needs attention and some support and perhaps unburdening. Jean, are you are you teaching some of what you know about IFS and the body, so that people have access to all that you've learned and have to share? Well, I do supervision, and I'm you know obviously work with my clients, and have done um, a continuity program, and I'm writing in the middle of writing a book about oh, self-led boy. eating. Oh, good. So, yeah. So I have a lot 
a lot in my head about that. But I'm really, I'm really excited about it because I think that, um, you know, it's, there's so much to learn and heal when we really look at how the kind of relationships we have with food in our bodies, you know, it's like trailheads galore. Right. So, mm -hmm. and I, I suspect I'll also, when the pandemic shifts, I might even, I have some thoughts about doing a workshop online. Um, but I really think um, that daily practice of really um, not being really noticing the parts that would um, and healing the ones who have these unrealistic ideas about what I should look like, how my body should function and really being with the, your body as it is now. Right. And then on a daily basis, negotiating with, you know, needs for sleep, movement, connection, you know, that kind of thing. One of the things that's been very striking is this whole, you know, COVID, the pandemic has laid bare all of these polarities, right? So it's like on the one hand, we should, there's like all these recipes for comfort food, you know, self-care in the form of a blueberry muffin and butter and flour, uh, butter and sugar was one of the recipes. And then next, the following week, there's an article about how, um, what to do about the COVID-19, you know, the weight gain or what kind of. Uh, home exercise practice, you know, so people are really being bombarded by all of these pulls mm -hmm. to get, you know, to keep getting in, uh, into parts. And when we're, um, when we're vulnerable as we are during a pandemic, right. We can be, we can be susceptible to that. Even if we have been pretty self-led about this and we can get caught up in that. Oh, you know, now I'll, I'll get, I'll do Pilates during the pandemic or something like that. And just, really checking in with that part so we can really address the vulnerability. We, we may end up also doing Pilates, but maybe in a different way, a more self-led way. And with attention being given to the part who's feeling scared, you know? And so, you know, so. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Jean, you have now this special relationship and responsibility within the Institute organization as a vice chair. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Thank you. So in many ways, your role in the IFAS Institute and community expanded. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share more on this development and uh, also regarding the future for the IFAS model? If you have some thoughts to share. Well, you know, I... Um, It became, you know, I've been kind of behind the scenes for the last 12 years, um, rightly so. I mean, I was learning and, and getting more and more experience with the model. And um, and then, you know, kind of accompanying Dick on, on <laughs> so many retreats and trainings and such, and really getting clear about, um, as he moves, you know, on into his career, needing to kind of have a... a um, a rescaling of the mm -hmm. organization, right? It's really growing and to meet the need of, of the, the interest, there's a lot of interest in this model, which mm -hmm. is so exciting and being able to meet that demand. Um, 
joining him and being able to think about all the ways that we can expand this and so we can make it more accessible to people you know across the world you know in different communities and um i feel excited about the all of what's happening right now in terms of really getting a sense of all of the um systemic oppression and being able to alleviate that obviously i have a specific focus here in terms of what happens with with our relationships with food and our bodies but just you know the the larger more global um reach of ifs to alleviate suffering is something i think we're all excited about and right now in the in the midst yeah. of really working to create the infrastructure that can allow us to do that so and looking at how we can make trainings more available both here and abroad um you know is is, is currently our focus beautiful So, Jean, thank you so much for having us. I feel I've learned so much from you today on our relationship with food and body. And it was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. And uh, our hope is that we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I feel like I just spoke, you know, scratch the surface so i hopefully we can speak again at another time thank you so much great thank i you, really enjoyed listening to you and being with you thank you